listening to the podcast game. Ken and Mila are the unacceptable podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the unacceptable podcast. Uh, we're here today with Ben Norton. Uh, Ben's a journalist, writer, filmmaker, musician, which is how we just started this conversation off. We, uh, before we get started, Ken has a bone to pick with jazz. So I guess we're going to start well, first, with let me, let me Oh, wait, wait, we're starting already. And if we're going to start with the fight over jazz, I don't know if I'm going to finish this interview. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about, I've had some adversarial interviews, but people starting off by saying that jazz sucks. I don't know, man. <laughs> right, let, me, let, me, let me make You've like taken on that. Regime Change Inc., but the anti-jazz people is a bit. Okay, so that's too far. <laughs> That's an incredible art form. You know, what an expansive language. I think musicians from every genre can learn from the, you know, the, the, the expansiveness of the language and what you can do with the instruments. But I played in rock bands with a bunch of jazz school kids, and there was, like, just the douchiest strain of, like, pretending to know about polyrhythms and shit like that and, like, thinking that they're so good and they're just good. And like band, kids who listen to Weezer like and love it, and that's so I'm I support that their whole life, and then they go to jazz school, and then they're like, no, no fuck, they they abandon what they love, what got them into music, and then they're like, let's do this like cover of Autumn Leaves in Nine, and it's like, no, just play the music that you want to play. Um, yeah, that's my that's my whole. It's more the culture, the like the culture of what is vaguely jazz now is like, I don't get it. I don't. I don't. No, get it's it. fair. It's like the institutionalization of jazz. I mean. My my college time was really weird, but I I always did jazz throughout college, and I'm people don't know this because I don't talk about it a lot because I'm I always spend my time on politics because this world is so fucked up. But if this world weren't so like and almost like irrevocably fucked up, I would probably be focused more on music, right? And mm-hmm. I really love jazz, but I 100% agree that like with the inst- institutionalization of jazz. There's definitely this really weird culture. It's very kind of machista, but not in like, like this like macho culture, but like not in a way of like working out. Like there's like the like the gym bros who are like, oh, I can lift more than you. There's also that with like the jazz bros who are like, yeah, I'm going to play giant steps in, you know, I'm going to play it in whatever key you, you want to name. And then I'll play it in like 15, 16. Now, don't get me wrong. I love that. That's 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 I love that stuff. But yeah. it is definitely like this kind of performative, douchey thing. I mean, douchey is a good word to describe it. Because, I mean, I still love it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and also, you know, I lived in in New York for almost six years, and I mean, I still play jazz. I mostly play metal, actually, but I also really am into jazz, and especially jazz metal. But that's a whole long. That's I think like a very I think, niche thing. Yeah, <laughs> but, I think but, I spent. Oh, sorry, go on. No, but I was going to say just in the New York jazz scene, it's awful. I would never play jazz in the New York scene because it's all about, it's all about competition. And that's, that's like part of that, the whole institutionalization you're talking about of jazz schools where they teach you, you have to learn all of these standards by heart and you have to learn in all these different keys and you have to be able to play blazing solos over it. And, and, and it becomes all like this weird competition to show that you're the best player as opposed to just loving jazz. Yeah. I just love jazz. I, ne- I didn't want to be like the best player. It's dumb. 
fair. I think I think I'm realizing right now, which is good about speaking about things as you realize things, is that I was really into experimental music as like a 16 year old, and just like a total dick to my like rock band friends. Like, no, dude, like we gotta push it, and they're like, and the only fuck? liked Red Hot Chili Peppers so and Parliament Funkadelic, and that was no, it. But the music Parliament Funkadelic is awesome. It is, but but when I jam with people, I wanted to push it like so hard. I wanted to do like the weirdest shit, and I didn't really know how. And I wasted a lot of my time on that. So now when I see people pushing it farther than they really should, it's like, dude, mm. you're, I just get this like projected kind of reaction. Like just just play music and enjoy it. Anyways, yeah, it's the end of my jazz rant. My no, I get that. Jazz. It's true. And there's a culture around it that is definitely, I, I love that in experimental stuff. I'm super into avant-garde, weird experimental music. But for me, the problem rises when people get really competitive. If it gets comp, it gets competitive. It's dumb because the point of music is it should be collaborative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just like- didn't like in jazz band when I when I had to use the my conductor kept making me because I played drums, he kept making me use the brushes all the time, and that really annoyed me because I just felt like I was being defanged a little bit with the brushes. I was like, I just want to rock out. Um, but he was great still, so. But brushes are good for ballads. That's why you, because it's for mm-hmm. more beautiful stuff. But yeah, I get it. You yeah. just want to hit, hit stuff really hard. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a very eloquent musician. I played classical for like 12 years on piano. And uh, after that, I just wanted to like yell, which is what all my music is now. Um, but yeah. Oh, so, that- <laughs> so, wait, tell us about your music. Do you talk about that in your show? A little bit, a little bit. Um, so it's a secret music project. Dark yeah, web. dark web. It's a dark web music project. It's not for people I know in real life. Um, no, I don't know. It's um, I haven't really been recording very professionally. Um, I play a few different things, but piano has always been kind of my primary instrument. And I used to be really afraid of singing um like alone i'd sing in choirs before but not like by myself um and then eventually um like the people who are like in line in the grocery store and they start singing yeah <laughs> yeah that what kind of doing <laughs> well, more like, wait more so, like... so you sing in the project or do you have any screaming because you said you sometimes just want to scream i sing i yell um i try to Hell like yeah. mix a little bit of I, I, I feel like it's kind of a mix of like Hole and John Frusciante. Like that's kind of my vibe a little bit. It's a good um, combo. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. I I was supp- I wanted to play a show recently and uh but then COVID happened and then Yeah. That didn't that didn't work out. Um you play but- live a lot, Ben? Well, I live in Nicaragua now and then there's this COVID thing, but I used to in, in New York more and then especially when I was younger, in high school and college, I was in a lot of, me- mostly metal bands. And mm-hmm. I'm really, I still mostly listen to metal. Mm-hmm. I, I really love metal, but also like most people who love metal, I'm extremely, very picky. Actually, let me take that back. This is actually true. This is like a stereotype that I'm 100% fulfilling. I really deeply love like 5% of metal, like more than anything. And then a lot of it I hate. Mm-hmm. Like maybe not I, not the other ninety five percent, but like over fifty percent of metal I hate. I have but a thing like five percent is the best thing ever. I had a thing like that with singers for a long time. Like ninety five percent of singers made me angry. Like they were uh, <laughs> full of expectation. But now I'm kind of over it. Maybe it was like a Holden Caulfield type thing. I don't know. Yeah, I, it was very Holden Caulfield. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I gotta say, so I, I came through metal through like the hardcore scene. I was, I wasn't like a scene kid. I never had like, I was never like aesthetically a scene kid, but I was, I grew up in like that and like the post hardcore scene. That was in New York or where did you grow up? Well, I moved a lot, but I went to high school in the, in the, in outside Louisville, Kentucky. So in Louisville, which, which is crazy. Like in the past year, Louisville has become like a major hub for like resistance to police brutality, which is cool. And there was like a, there was like a kind of anarcho punk scene there that I was part of when I was in high school and I was really into that stuff. And then I, I started getting into like heavier stuff like metal, but always influenced by hardcore. So like metalcore, deathcore, like all the coarse grindcore. Mm-hmm. So like all like the more punk influenced metal. So like not the metal with like guys with long hair. That's really dumb. And like, and like satanic symbols it's so fucking stupid it's like really it's so dumb it's really childish honestly i think but like the more hardcore infused metal do you like the mars volta or at the drive-in i love the mars volta fuck yeah i'm glad you said that i love some good stuff that's that's the good shit where like john theater on the first album is like doing this crazy shit but it's like like it makes sense you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah well you were talking about odd time i i'm obsessed with odd time and all my yeah. music has a lot of odd time stuff in it but you're right that a lot of people they try to do odd time but like in a way that doesn't groove and mars volta is the best example of really groovy funky odd time riffs that are fucking yeah. amazing and yeah. by the way did you all see this I, I just heard this the other day and it, I can't believe it because I really, Kanye West is a piece of shit. Although I gotta admit, well, his music- That's a controversial <laughs> on this podcast. His music that's, is yeah, pretty good. We love Kanye. Well, I'll say his music is, is pretty good. Some of it's pretty brilliant, but he, as what a person and as a politician, he's a piece of shit. But I just heard, I don't know if this is true, but apparently Kanye said that he's working on an album with the Mars Volta. Whoa, that won't work. Like, That's I'm like so excited. That's like my dream like, come true. Oh, fuck. Wow. I, I love Kanye. I Which drummer? If they got John Theodore back? I hope it's John Theodore. Holy oh, fuck. my God. So, so Cedric Baxter Zavala, you all know this, right? The, the vocalist. I got to say, Mars Volta was, is the only project he did that I like. I don't like his other projects, but, but Cedric was in a band with, with fuck, uh, Beto. Really? Cedric Baxter Zavala, the vocalist of the Mars Volta, was in a band with Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> like back in the day or recently? Like, yeah, wait, wait. Okay, like yeah, yeah, when they yeah. were in high school or something. And they yeah. fucking sucked. They were so bad. <laughs> Is Beto from El Paso? Yeah. Yes, in Texas yeah. somewhere. There's people from El Paso, like, support. I love El Paso. I've never been. But, I gotta yeah. say, on, on the Mars Volta thing, I have one thing. I mean, you open a can of worms with this. I love them so much. And, <laughs> and Omar Rodriguez Lopez's work is brilliant. But uh, I had a funny story related to this. And I was just thinking about it actually a few months ago with, like, with this fucking end of the world with COVID. When I, when I was in college, it was one of the last shows that Mars Volta played before they kind of like broke up or went on hiatus or whatever. And, and it was during swine flu and i had tickets to see them i i saw them before i think i saw them two other times this is gonna be my third time and they canceled the show because cedric the vocalist got swine flu mm. oh my god wow 
That's crazy. You saw them twice. Wow, which drummers? Do you, do you remember which drummer they had at that point? One time it was it was Theodore, John Theodore, and I don't remember who the other one was, but I I got to look this up. Thomas Pridgen? Thomas Pridgen. Yeah, I saw one time with Thomas Pridgen. He's so good too. Thomas Pridgen yeah, is amazing. I felt like John Theodore though like was so perfect in that band. For me, I also I mean I love Pridgen did the album. He did Oh, I didn't realize that Thomas Pridgen played in Chiodos, too. That's hilarious. Oh, my no, God. Yeah. That's a throwback. Right, right. Yeah, I, I saw that a few times. I think I saw him at, like, Van's Warped Tour or something. Yeah, that's the vibe. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any shame about that. I used to love all that stuff. Post-tour oh, was me fun. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my jam. I remember getting my, like, ass beat at a, a, a Day to Remember concert. <laughs> That and like that was that was my first time in a mosh pit and I was like fifteen and I and I remember just being so bruised up afterwards. Hey, I still mosh when I can. It's yeah, yeah so I like it too. I I've never like that concert. System of a Down and Slayer were like the most like crazy in terms of moshing. I haven't seen anything as wild since since those. But. Dillinger Escape Plan. If either of you know them, yeah, a bit. yeah. Dillinger yeah. Escape Plan, craziest, most violent show I've ever. I've I went to them a few times, but honestly, they're one of my favorite bands, mm -hmm. and I love them so deeply. But I was always kind of hesitant to go to their shows mm -hmm. because I was like, this is one of those shows where I'm actually gonna get like, like a, a limb broken or something, like yeah. someone's gonna like break my nose. Were they, they like were so idiots crazy. there or just go hard? Well, the band and everyone, everyone just went fucking crazy, and the band yeah. encouraged it. And Ben Weinman, who is the guitarist and who wrote a lot of the material of Dillinger Escape Plan, there are like, you can find videos and photos of him like bleeding all over his face because like, uh, this happened I think two different times, not just one time, where one of the other band members, I think it was, might've been the bassist, I'm not, I don't remember, but hit him in the head on accident with the, the headstock of his bass and his, it like split his head open and there's like blood everywhere. Damn. Oh, are they the band that do the like spinning thing? That's a really well, weird question, but <laughs> that used to be like a post-hardcore thing. All the metalcore bands would do that. Yeah. And they they did that a bit, but they were just crazier. Like the the vocalist Greg Pucciato, he would always jump off stuff. And the last time I saw them was their last show ever before breaking up. And it was at Terminal 5 in New York City, and they did this show and Terminal 5 is like a big venue they usually have for like, they have like big, I saw like Young Thug there and they have like big like rap artists and pop artists there. So it's this huge venue and they sold it out, even though this is like a, a major hardcore band, mathcore band really. And, and Greg Pucciato, the vocalist, climbed up to the second, he, he didn't take the stairs, he climbed up to the second floor, which is like really high. We're talking like 10 meters or something. And and then he just jumped off into the audience. Did he, was he okay? Yeah, well, people, people, people caught him, him, but I'm sure like people got hurt. <laughs> well, I would just get out of the way, I think, if someone did that. Or like stick my arm out, you know, but like get my body out of the way. Yeah. Crazy shows, man. I, yeah, I've had my I fair share. So we, I miss it. That's like what I miss the most about like, is going to those like local shows. You stand and... in the rain smoking most of the time. Yeah, exactly. 
get like kicked in the head maybe um well i unfortunately was... have gotten kicked in the head several yeah, times same. one time i blacked out oh my yeah. god do either of you know this band i mean we're talking about music I, i'm just i just nerd out whenever we talk about music i mean why are I we even talking about we'll politics? move on soon but, to the yeah we'll move on but do either of you know the band between the buried and me I just know the name. Yeah, I know the name. I haven't seen them or anything. They're like a death... Well, they started as a deathcore band, but then they kind of like toned down a bit and became kind of like a more prog metal band. Mm-hmm. And they came out of the, the deathcore and, me- and metalcore scene in, in North Carolina. They, like, there was a really cool scene. A lot of like really political bands, a lot of like anarcho-punk bands, a lot of them also like vegan, straight edge kind of stuff, which I used to be more into when I was younger. And... I and I, I've seen Between the Buried and Me like 13 times like I'm not even exaggerating and <laughs> one of my favorite bands and I saw them at like 2008 or something and I got kicked in the head so hard that I blacked out damn <laughs> and 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 I woke up and I was on someone had people had like taken me back to this this like picnic table that was at like the back of the venue outside (laughs) and i was just lying there and i woke up and there was some dude who was like are you okay do you need to go to the hospital and i was like no man i'm okay damn you guys have a very you guys go harder than me yeah (laughs) i think it's like a maybe for me it's like a small man syndrome like i go to these things and i'm like this like five two garden gnome and i'm in my like platform combat boots with something to prove you know yeah um so for me man ken it's just adrenaline it's pure adrenaline like Mm -hmm. it i it really is it's a it's such an adrenaline rush and it's so fun i just don't i'm just like really tall maybe so i don't get kicked in the head or whatever but like also you you go to harder core like harder moshing shows i like like a nice gentle like you know bop and bounce mosh fit I, get I, I was never, like... when I was kicked in the head, I wasn't in the pit. It's actually, oh, yeah. th- here's, here's a tip of, for shows, especially really, really heavy shows, but not even just like super heavy. Like this is pop punk shows. Mm-hmm. It's the, the most dangerous thing are the fucking crowd surfers. Yeah, I yeah. hate crowd yeah, surfers. hundred yeah. percent. That was the last time I got kicked in the head was by a crowd surfer. And it's always dudes who are like 200 pounds who don't need to fucking be crowd surfing. And they're always the ones who hurt people. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, not yeah. the pit. I've I, never been like drastically yeah. hurt in a pit. I, I've been like put like punched a bit, but never been like seriously wounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you can absorb kinetic energy in the pit if things are too crazy. And, like, yeah. You know, true. You know, like, uh, yeah. Everyone has a purpose. But anyway. Most people. He's no, yeah, everyone has a purpose. Um, it's God. God has a plan for all of us. God, okay. Oh. <laughs> Except the bourgeoisie. Oh, my Uh-oh. God. Uh-oh. I, just, I just fell out of them, so I don't know who I am. <laughs> Starving Artist 420 or whatever your username is. Oh, yeah, I made a... I made a I'm, I'm Are we going to talk about this on the pod? I'm seeking arrangements. Yeah, why Oh, yeah, not? Ken's looking for Did a Did you just dox mama. your co-host? <laughs> no i mean it's very public i use my real face so i'm looking for some um, <laughs> yeah if any of you want to be ken's sugar mama hit us up um, i wonder what parents would think of this that'll be a starving bad. artist uh it was starving what, artist what's your handle starving artist 420 <laughs> artist 69 420 and okay. then I, I that's a bit much and now i'm trying to think of something else Oh my Something god! It's heavy-handed, but I want that some some kind of relationship that to be implied like there, so they have like an understanding of the angle, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're being upfront about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Take my teeth, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, on that note, we'll move on to uh, some political stuff. Uh, oh, wait, we're talking about politics? I thought we were just talking about... Yeah, just, well, I, I want to know how long you've been in Nicaragua. Well, I, I moved here at the beginning of the year. So this, this time, I came down in like January and February looking for a place. I found one. And then I, for like a week, I came back to the U.S. to get a lot of my stuff and put my rest in, the rest in storage in March. Mm-hmm. And then I came back. And I got out just in time before coronavirus hit New York. And oh, I feel like I'm pretty lucky because like, lucky. yeah. I would have been like stranded in in a shitty apart tiny one hundred square foot like i guess it's i guess it's like you would all use like i guess ten square meter or whatever no we use it. we use feet square feet in Canada yeah yeah. We Canada like uses a, feet? Well, well, you're supposed to use, like, the official one is, like, meters. Yeah, but it's like a mix. It's like a mix. Yeah. Like, we don't really have a consistent uh, system going with this. I prefer feet. I prefer feet. Yeah. I actually prefer meters, because in Latin America, I've gotten used to meters and Celsius. They make way more sense. Oh, we do yeah. Celsius, yeah. Pro-Celsius yeah. game. Yeah, we do Celsius. Um, so, would you recommend moving to Nicaragua? I mean... If you speak Spanish, because no one really speaks English, mm-hmm. and if you don't mind extremely hot weather all year round, okay, it's awesome. I like it, and I mean, I, I also, I mean, I came here. I mean, I'm not going to stay here forever, but I came here because I really like it, and also because I'm covering politics here a lot, a decent bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of other things, but, and especially, I'm, I'm definitely going to be here through twenty until 2022. Because mm-hmm. next year there's a major election, mm, and there yeah. are very few, there are basically no English language journalists here who aren't like right wing tools. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed reporting on Latin America is very bad, very often. It's very similar to Middle East, I think, um, in so that respect. Uh, you know, especially when like the world turns against say Palestinians for instance or like minorities in Syria you need to have (laughs) like it makes I think you know it's valid to also talk about it you don't need to be exactly from said country or said region to to have an opinion but yeah all that to say all the discourse reporting I think reporting on Latin America Middle East China it's all shit um, well, on that note, you raise a really interesting point that's related to that, and and in and, and you've tweeted quite a bit, a bit about this, and I and mm-hmm. it's very refreshing because so few people talk about it. But it's so crazy to me; it's so incredible to see how some of the same people who take this kind of performative politics when it comes to like the global north or some certain countries in the global south, like Venezuela, mm-hmm. where there's like this hyper fetishization of specific minority groups in a way that doesn't actually empower or liberate them. It, they just use them as, as like collateral to justify imperialism. What's so incredible is that some of these same people will be like, yeah, we don't give a fuck about minorities in the Middle East. And mm-hmm. if you talk about minorities in the Middle East, you're right winged or you're yeah. Islamophobic. Exactly, exactly. Well, that's what I have appreciated on when I've listened to your show is uh, obviously I'm not right wing. <laughs> But like when we speak about the oppression of uh, minority groups, um, that the discourse about Christians in 
Canada, for instance, does not map on to the discourse about Christians in the Middle East. It's a completely different scenario. And it's absurd that people on the left are afraid of, you know, being labeled Islamophobes just because they want to criticize a very real kind of violence that's happening right now. Um, and that is grossly exacerbated by imperialism. So like mm-hmm. the, the example of Syria is pretty clear. I mean, the ethnic cleansing and mass genocide of minorities, but even in Iraq, no one ever mm-hmm. talks about the, the Assyrian genocide in Iraq, mm-hmm. in large part due to the U.S. invasion, where mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact figures, but you can look before the invasion of Iraq, according to U.N. figures, and then look after and something like 80% of Assyrians and other Iraqi Christians were either killed or expelled from the country. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many people I could call out on this, but I mean, there's people with vested interests in imperialism who then also deny Christian persecution in the Middle East, even when we're not talking about imperialism. Like, I remember this study came out saying that like christians are the most persecuted group in the middle east and africa or something like that and cj whirlman who's like my prime example of this kind of person um was like tweeting like no actually like muslims are the most oppressed like everywhere and blah 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 and i'm like but i think you know it's all part of the same package right because like if you acknowledge Christ- christian persecution then you have to give up some of the imperialist ambitions that give rise to Christian persecution, like funding the uh, so-called moderate rebels, so to speak. Well, and especially Shia persecution. The persecution mm-hmm. of Shia is equally genocidal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, honestly, a lot of these Salafi jihadi groups, the people they hate more than anyone else are Shia, mm-hmm. like even more than Christians. So it's really, it's so disgusting to see I mean, I remember when I was in high school, because I mentioned I went to high school kind of in the outskirts of Louisville, Kentucky, and there were a lot of very conservative Christians. And I remember there were these campaigns by these conservative Christians who were like, we have to save the Christians in the Middle East. And of course, these are the same ones who, who supported the Iraq war, supported the war in Libya, the war in Syria. I mean, it's insanely hypocritical. Mm-hmm. And of course, so I, under, I get why people sometimes associate that kind of rhetoric with right-wingers, even though it's dumb and we shouldn't associate it with just right-wingers. But it's just so mind-blowing to me that there's active genocide ongoing against Shia, against Christians, against even like non, non-Shia Muslims who are like kind of more Sunni, but maybe are into like Sufism. Because mm-hmm. like they're, they're also killed by ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, and Jaish al-Islam, all these other groups. But it's like this very specific monolithic form of Salafi, Jihadist, or Wahhabi theology that is like portrayed as this mainstream that that is what it is to be muslim and then you have these psychos like cj whirlman who is an atheist but is like so invested partially because he gets paid by turkish state media and all these other i mean who knows where else but like he's very in with these like muslim brotherhood circles who are like actively and actively invested in like pushing what is ultimately an Islamophobic narrative that the only real Muslims are like the Takfiri Salafi jihadi ones. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like, it's not Islamophobic to criticize the extremist. If anything, you know, you're criticizing them because they're not all of them. I, I mean, most Sunni Muslims um, are not jihadists. 
um my my grandmother is a very sweet old lady she <laughs> um and to if essentially if you're calling people who are criticizing these groups like Nusra and um like basically all of these moderate rebels so to speak um if we're if we're gonna be if you're calling people islamophobic for that then essentially what you're saying is that like this kind of thing counts or is representative of islam which just seems very silly to me um and what i find ironic is a lot of these people who are otherwise left or liberal and other things so for instance they'll say things like it's not anti-semitic to criticize israel um will then say well it's islamophobic to go after these guys who want to cut off christians heads um so then i wonder okay well why is this applied to israel and not these like literal jihadists that's kind of my beef with with this whole thing and in the case of cj Worleman. It's just so crazy. If people don't know who don't know who this guy is, CJ Worleman is like this kind of media gadfly pundit. He's got like a podcast, and he got his start as at one of like the new atheists, like with a capital N, capital N, capital A, mm-hmm. and he was like a hardcore neocon, hardcore warmonger, like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, super Islamophobic. And also a plagiarist. He, he ended up being exposed to writing a bunch of articles that he plagiarized. And then he just like had some weird change of heart and is now actively a deep supporter of Islamism, of political Islam. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. Yeah, I remember that article that was like defending Al-Shabaab. <sighs> wait, wait, sorry. Did you call Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris uh, warmongers? Yeah, Sam Harris especially. Harris, what? yeah, but, but Dawkins, no. But I think Harris is. I don't know about da- Dawkins. No, Dawkins, he's not as active as Sam Harris, but Dawkins definitely. Dawkins is is very much like the kind, he represents the kind of like right-wing, right-wing of labor. Mm. But Sam Harris is like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Dawkins a neocon. He's like, he's just like an, like. He's an a lib, yeah. He's like an, an old, old Blairite who actually has like, some like British colonial sensibilities. You'll, you'll hear that with a lot of his language. And, and it makes sense when you know that he actually grew up in a British colony and had like uh, British colonial servants. Yeah. His dad was a British colonial officer. But Sam Harris is straight up, Sam Harris is a neocon 100%. Like mm-hmm. in the sense that like most neocons are socially liberal, but he's. Sam Harris has written articles arguing for defending the idea of preventative nu- nuclear strikes, pre- yeah. or defensive nu- nuclear strikes. He also has defended torture, defended racial profiling. I, I did an article with Max at the Gray Zone, my colleague Max Blumenthal, looking at how he was a huge supporter of Hillary Clinton, of course, in 2016. And Sam Harris said that he loved Hillary Clinton. I'm quoting him exactly because she knows where to fly her drones. That's an exact quote that Sam Harris said about Hillary Clinton. He also, we wrote an article at the Gray Zone about how Sam Harris hates radical Islam, which, you know, extremist Salafi jihadist Islam, of course, that, that's, we were talking about how that's awful. Mm-hmm. But what's funny is Sam Harris also criticized Obama for not directly militarily intervening in Syria 
and overthrowing the Syrian government. <laughs> so he wrote an article about how Sam Harris is mad that the U.S. didn't directly overthrow the secular Syrian government on behalf of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And, and at the yeah. time he was complaining, ISIS was the main opposition. <laughs> Ugh. Anyway, yeah, I'm. It's really embarrassing for. I kind of joke that like atheists and feminists are like the two groups that like I agree with on a lot of things, but like just embarrass me in public. Um, I mean, I'm an atheist, but like it, it's just a complicated thing. Like, because mm-hmm. atheism doesn't say anything about your politics. All it means yeah. is your your religious worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been a fan of Harris. I was, like, a big Dawkins person when I was in high school because I was in a Catholic school and, like, you know. But, but yeah, I, I think there's definitely something funny to be said about this kind of brand of uh, centrist or neocon or whatever where, you know, it's exactly that where they're saying stuff like we need to be tough on radical Islam, blah, blah, blah. They'll use that to justify their pro-Israel stances as well. Um, But then at the same time, they have this complete support for funding these like heavily militarized Islamist groups behind the scenes. This is something I really enjoyed about Max's book, actually, is I thought he laid this out very clearly. Um, And I think it's something that people kind of need to know a little bit better. You see these pundits like uh, Eli Lake or like... uh, a lot of these like old school neocon guys who do exactly this. Um, Eli Lake literally wrote an article in Bloomberg Opinion where he's got a column. And by the way, he gets paid like the, the, there was a leaked document that showed that he was paid $400,000 a year. And that was like that was several years ago to write to just vomit out these <laughs> vile columns. And in one of them, he did an interview with a member, with a leader of Jaish al-Islam, the yeah, army of Islam. Yeah, I saw that. A Salafi jihadist group literally created by Saudi Arabia, funded by Saudi Arabia, that was hell-bent on the extermination of Shia and that put, that put Alawite Muslims in, in Syria in human cages, specifically yeah. the women in, in cages, and then, and then pushed them around to use as human shields. And he wrote an article saying that Jaish al-Islam is good and we should support them because they're pro-Israel. Yeah, like, these guys, they're, they're whack to me. But, like, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if they're genuine or if they're just, like, trying to, just, like, shilling for the State Department or what. Like, I, it's very hard for me to tell sometimes. It depends. In the case of Eli Lake, 100% true believer. And you can tell because this is a fucking nerd who bought a t-shirt with a a former Israeli prime minister who was an actual terrorist. Menachem Begin. Oh, Begin, yeah. Who who is a, by the way, you have to be like a diehard right-wing Zionist to even know who that is, yet alone to buy a fucking t-shirt with his face (laughs) on it. This is a guy who was a literal terrorist. He was in a terrorist organization yeah. in, that was used where they carried out acts of, of terror against civilians in, I mean, it was British colonized Palestine. I, I mean, I, I, it's one thing to support resistance, armed resistance against the British colonization, but they went and they actually bombed civilian infrastructure, including the, the Camp David, the, not Camp David, the King David Hotel. 
yeah, yeah, that's... These guys are wild. I just... It makes me sad. Um, I, I think, you know, it's refreshing to have alternative media right now because of this, because you see, like, this isn't just fringe opinion where we're seeing support for Salafis. Um, we're seeing this in, like, MSNBC, CNN kind of uh, uh, sort of, you know, and it's funny because people will be like, oh, the liberal media, like, the right will complain about the CNN being too liberal and whatever, but they all converge on foreign policy. And uh, it's like the, 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 the more liberal ones just make it sound more like intersectional, like intersectional imperialism. Kind intersectional of imperialism, my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Like the first, the first female uh, director of the CIA and like stuff like that. The first female torturer. Yeah. Yeah, give, exactly. Give your money to lady coomongers <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and by yeah the way, on this note did you all see the u.s air force did this thing the israeli air force has done this too where they had a pink airplane yeah yeah for breast cancer awareness or something yeah oh man yeah all this like like woke imperialism it's a very big industry i think um there was that thing that was like drones are queer bodies or something like oh. that, that, that article. But wasn't that satire? Was it? I thought it was like a real article. You know what? It's impossible to know nowadays. So Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, you're mentioning support for selfies. I, I would also recommend anyone listening to this. I still, it still blows my mind going back to this. There's this video of Dana Rohrbacher, if you all remember him. He was this hardcore right-winger who also had, like, these really, not to, like, shame him, I guess, but he, there was this insane article about how he had, like, these, like, weird sex parties and all this stuff, and some journalist went to his house, and, like, it said it was, like, the most disgusting house he had ever seen, where, like, all the carpets were just, like, Oh, anyway, so Dana okay. Rohrbacher. <laughs> we kink shame on this podcast, don't worry. <laughs> well, if it's if it's an insane right wing warmonger who supports ISIS, it's justified because yeah. this guy he he did this this hearing as a congressman after ISIS. You might remember did a, a terror attack inside Tehran near the parliament, and mm -hmm. right after the attack, there was a there was a hearing in in the U.S. Congress. And Dana Rohrbacher said, there's a, there's a video of this. He said, I don't get it. ISIS is fighting Iran and bombing Iran. So why don't we just support them? Yeah, like... Okay, okay I looked up the, the queer, the queer uh, drones. This says drone disorientation. I think it's International Feminist Journal of Politics. Yeah. Killing with drones produces queer moments of disorientation. <laughs> That's the oh first line of the episode. Like, I'm just going to kill myself. I can't. <laughs> I, how queer <laughs> wait no, but kidding. kill yourself with the drone this so then it's, yeah. it's like a queer suicide it's a queer experience oh, to woke sui woke suicide <laughs> um yeah I, this is the future of imperialism i think i really do think Whoa. that it is um going to be justified in these ways i think it kind of started with hillary clinton and this sort of girl boss imperialism but you mean we, we see it too with like the coup in bolivia as well um you know where like we're like oh they have a woman elected and the woman's being like i want all to kill all indigenous people and that's empowering somehow 
Um, well, I got to say, I, I, I don't always agree with Chris Hedges. I'll preface by saying that. I think he's got some really interesting ideas. And he, in his most recent book, which is about the decline of the U.S. empire, it's called America the Farewell, Farewell Tour. He has a really interesting part on where he he talks up he was was he interviews like these these like right wing Catholics who are into BDSM. And, interesting. I want to interview he, them. He kind of explores like he explores this idea of like fascist queer sexuality. And again, I'm and I'm preface I want to preface this. I'm absolutely I'm pro LGBT, of course. But we also have <laughs> To, and people are going to attack me for saying, but, but, but also, but it's true that like, if you actually go back and look at classical fascism, like with Italian fascism and the Nazis, they weren't actually as deeply antagonistic to some of these ideas as you would think. Of course, it is, it's a fact that, that homosexuals, especially men, were brutally, uh, people are going to attack me for saying homosexuals, but that's what they would say back then. But the gay people, <laughs> okay, especially don't men, Wait, is homosexuals were, wrong now? People might say that I'm being like homophobic by calling, I don't know, whatever. But, so, okay, but of course, it's true that gay men were absolutely persecuted. But actually, there's some interesting research that's been done on sexuality in Nazi Germany in the, in the German army. Homosexuality was super rampant. Well, maybe you wouldn't call it homosexuality, but like gay sex was super rampant in the, the German army while they were all... So part of it's like it's related to Joseph Massad's book on desiring Arabs, where mm. he talks a lot about the kind of he, he uses the term homo nationalism. Yeah. And that's how a good the term. idea of like LGBT identity and the Western construct as like your identity, as a specific thing about your identity, it is in some ways a Western construction and it's a it's a certain historical construction. And that there there were like a lot of people throughout history that that engaged in like gay or queer or whatever behavior or sexual activity, whatever you want to call it, but like didn't necessarily have that identity. So anyway, the, the point is that also in, in his book, Chris Hedges explores some like German Nazi, pro-Nazi psychoanalysis about like queer identity and stuff. So anyway, all I'm getting at is that, of course, we should, as socialists or people on the left or whatever your, your politics are of course i'm arguing i, I would argue we should defend 100 percent lgbt rights defend queer folks 100 percent. but we should also understand that like the idea of a far right that is pro lgbt or pro women's rights in, in a, like a distorted way is actually not necessarily a new thing yeah and they're kind of just like repurposing these older ideas that kind of went out of vogue for a while but like there are a lot of fascists today who actually would say that they are pro-LGBT and in some cases even pro-feminist. I went at the RNC in 2016, I went to the Queers for, or the Gays for, it was called Queers for Trump Party. And it was, it was sponsored by Milo Yiannopoulos and this group, Queers for Trump. And on the background behind, there's, I have photos of this that I published in, in an article from reporting from there. There was, this, there was this group called Twinks for Trump. And it was all these skinny white dudes wearing MAGA hats with no shirts on. And they were all super pro-Trump. And they were, there was posters of them on the background. And then fucking Pamela Geller spoke. And Heert Wilders, the Dutch fascist politician, spoke at this Queers no. for Trump party. Oh, my God. 
That's but so... Then what, what's the fascism? I always thought, like, the association is that it's about a social order that people find attractive. So what... The, what if you remove... Like, that's my main association with fascism. Other, like, the government controlling you. But what is... What are they... What do these people want? Well, if, it, this is like... That's going to be a whole long conversation about what makes something specifically fascist. But I would say some of the main elements are, one, I mean... Uh, fascism is a in, an intensely hierarchical political movement in the sense that hierarchy is good. I mean, all move, political movements, including anarchism, by the way, have hierarchies, even though they might not acknowledge it, to different degrees. But in anarchism, they say hierarchies are bad. And fascism is like, no, hierarchies are inherently good. There are natural hierarchies of different varieties. So you could say like the white supremacist fascists or like even that's true for like Salafi jihadist fascists. Yes. And then... But also, and, and a, key point, a key important part of fascism is understanding the relationship of the state is, is also this, the state is a vehicle to prevent class solidarity and to maintain that hierarchy. Because this is why the totalitarian thesis is so fucking dumb. And, and we should also understand that like a lot of the people who created the totalitarian thesis, going back to, you know... Arendt. This is, well, Hannah Arendt's the, fam the most famous example, but actually, if you go back, Hannah Arendt kind of most is the most po person who popularized it, but it actually goes back to a lot to like Adorno, and this gets into like the Frankfurt School, which you don't have time to get into, and, and there's like so many dumb right-wing conspiracies about the Frankfurt School and anti-Semitic conspiracies, but it is true that a lot of those people worked for the the OSS, the mm -hmm. Office for Strategic um, strategic studies for the U.S. government, which became strategic services, which became the CIA, and they it began, and it's understandable that especially um, Adorno was was working a lot with with U.S. intelligence services um, during World War II. That's understandable. They were helping the war effort against fascism. But then what ha happened after is that Marcusa, who was working with the OSS. Marcusa continued working with the, the OSS, which became the CIA, on anti-Soviet work. And a lot of the Frankfurt School, all the Frankfurt School theorists were deep, deeply anti-Soviet. And they, they helped provide the kind of intellectual justification for the totalitarian thesis, trying to lump together fascism and Soviet communism, and also Yugoslav communism to a lesser degree. And because they were even against Tito. I mean, and Tito was also against Stalin. So like they were, and what's interesting is that Marcusa's book on Soviet Marxism was published when he was on the bankroll of the OSS. It was basically funded by the CIA. And that provided a lot of like the intellectual justification in academic Marxist circles for the attempt to conflate Soviet communism with fascism. It literally came out of the OSS, which is the CIA. And yeah. And, Adorno and Marcuso also were deeply involved in the early days of Radio Free Europe, oh, which God. was called Radio Liberation from Bolshevism. Yeah. So anyway, that was a long aside, but like fa fascism is not really well understood. And I think that people need to understand like the degree to which that fascism is the merging of capital and the state in order to defend the interests of capital yeah. and not the working class at all. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really succinct and coherent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, it's the, very heartbreaking to me about Marcuse because I really liked him. <laughs> I mean, Marcuse has some interesting ideas, but like yeah. it makes you really rethink 
the branding of the new left because yes. like, there are a lot of good groups there are a lot of awesome groups in the new left like the panthers right and and red stockings like the the marxist feminist group and there's a lot of other great groups but like the whole branding of new left with capital n capital l i'm deeply suspicious of it because a lot of these groups were actually pretty deeply antagonistic antagonistic with each other yeah. and part of the whole branding of new the new left is like an attempt to portray all of it as the left against the Soviet Union, against communist China at, at that time, even though a lot of them were actually Maoists, and then against the national liberation struggles. So like the national liberation struggles in Korea, Vietnam, and there's like this attempt to portray that the new left is like this anarchisty hippie movement. But in <laughs> fact, a, a large strand, like many of those groups were either Maoists and were like Marxist Leninist Maoist and were like all like carrying around the red book which there's a whole other weird conversation about that. But like, and then a lot of other of them were like openly supporting the National Liberation Front in Vietnam, open, openly supporting the Soviet Union. Like the, the, the rebranding of Angela, this is, she didn't do this. Like the woke liberals who rebranded Angela yeah. Davis. Oh my uh, God. She has like the like, Lenin Angela Award Davis. from the Soviet Union. Angela Davis said to vote for Joe Biden, so no, I saw that vote for Biden. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the new left that I'm very critical of as well, and I've discussed some of it on the podcast. I think also they really don't want any kind of dialogue at all. They have these like unquestionable truths, and I think to how they were trying to you know deplatform max when his book came out as well um and like sending letters to the bookstore and harassing the bookstores and stuff like that um so they don't want to hear from other leftists with different opinions they don't want to talk things out they just have their own sort of uh clubhouse it seems that well when, when i say new left that's like the new new left the new mm. left is like because you mentioned marcusa like yeah. Marcusa is, is, he's known, people call him, if you read like all like the scholarship, they call him the godfather of the new left, like right. intellectually, justifying. Yeah, I guess like, I'm talking about like, in. I'm talking more, I'm thinking of like some of the Jacobin left, not all oh, of them, God. but. Uh, but it's like actually a great Navarra example. Or those, those kinds of. This is a good example because like the new, new left, there's like all these different tendencies within it. And if you try to lump it in together as a group, that would be, it wouldn't make any sense. Because yeah. like there, a lot of them are, are each other's throats, but like that's what that's what a lot of people do, historians and scholars, and even like some Marxist theorists try to do with the new left from yeah. the sixties and seventies. Yeah, but they're they're at each other's throats. I notice, but they they don't want to have any real discussion. Um, they kind of more just want to cancel you. Uh, especially, they don't want any discussion of anti-war politics at all I, I mean my experience has been absolutely horrible when I've tried to talk about Christian persecution in the Middle East they just yell at you call you an Assadist and say like you don't have a right to speak that's the way they get at your throat they don't get at your throat by actually factually disputing what you're saying um, which is so irritating to me personally because I'm saying like let's talk about it let's talk about how this kind of rhetoric uh, takes place with like in certain kinds of contexts of war let's talk about that but 
I just find that they just jump at your throat right away. And Syria, I think, is the, the biggest example of that and what did, made me the most uh, disillusioned, personally. Yeah, and what's, what's really interesting about it is that, you know, I've, you've been tar- the target of it, I've been the target of it, a lot of our friends and comrades and colleagues have been the target of it, this insane blacklisting and censorship and attacks over Syria. And then the most insane is the attempt to portray us as like crypto fascists, yeah. which is so Everyone's crazy. Everyone's a fascist now. Because um, it's, it's people who either support the CIA's efforts in Syria, or if they don't, they're at least, if they don't openly support it, that is, in the case mm-hmm. of act- actively lobbying for US military intervention on behalf of these, these rebels, at, at the very least, they're aiding, they're indirectly aiding and abetting actual fascists because there are actual, fa- I mean, look, a lot of Syrians have criticism of the Syrian government. That's for Syrian suicide, right? Yeah. It's a secular government where it defines secular in a way that includes like forcible, like, ma- ma- like women can't wear the burqa and all this stuff. So th- mm-hmm. the, the idea that it's not secular is insane. It's an extremely secular government in a region full of theocratic dictatorships theocratic monarchies so yeah i mean i'm very critical of them too like i do think it is a police state but i i again it's this this is different than uh you know characterizing it as like having a religious theocratic government is a million times worse so so much worse when i was just going out i mean because there's also some people who try to portray this insane conspiracy that like like bashar al-assad was personally in a conspiracy with isis it's like so insane. And the attempt to portray the Syrian government as like this sectarian, like Alawite regime is so crazy because they like secularism is deeply written into every law. The actual fascists in Syria are, is not the government. The actual fascists are these Salafi jihadis who want to commit genocide against minorities. Yeah. And like the attempt to portray people who oppose the attempt to dismember this post-colonial country and hand it over to Saudi Arabia and Qatar and ISIS and the CIA and Israel, the attempt to portray them or us as fascists is just so dystopian. And it's like the people who are actually supporting fascists call you a fascist. And it's the same thing with, with a lot of this stuff, like with also with Russia. So if you oppose the proxy war on Russia in Ukraine, they call you a fascist because supposedly Putin is like the head of the fascist international and all this, whatever. Yeah. Putin's a conservative. He's, he's a social conservative. Yeah. But by the way, there are actual fascists in the war in Ukraine and the vast majority of them are on the side of Ukraine and there are literal Nazis who are supported by NATO. And yeah. if you talk about Ukrainian Nazis, you're also a Putinite fascist. It's so crazy, but it's not an organic narrative. This is a narrative that emanates from the U.S. national security state, from intelligence services, from their mouthpieces like the Daily Beast, the, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. And like, it's not just some, the idea that these narratives like emerge from the left, it, it betrays a, a misunderstanding of where this stuff comes from. It's all astroturfed psyop stuff. Yeah, I, in Canada especially, I've been learning a little bit more about um, the the Ukrainian fascists. I was reading stuff by Yasha Levine on that, and it's just shocking to me. Like one of our most high up politicians, Christian Freeland, uh, 
has praised Ukrainian Nazis. And this her is grandpa like, was Ukrainian Nazi. Yeah. And this is somebody who is like a top, someone in a top position in a woke prog liberal government uh, that just pays lip service to every sort of social justice cause possible, while their foreign policy, on the other hand, is so absolutely neocon in so many respects uh it's it's a joke it's our government is is very much a joke even though it yeah, gets good note, international press <laughs> yeah I, on this note of like the woke trudeau administration and christia friedland th- it was so talk about dystopian christia friedland for years hid the fact she still actually hides it that her grandpa was an avowed ukrainian nazi who worked voluntarily. He was he edited a Ukrainian Nazi newspaper that was taken over by Nazi Germany when it occupied parts of Ukraine. And it was it was overseen directly by Nazi Germany. And it was of course genocidally anti-Semitic. Yeah, among it was also genocidally against the Roma and other groups. And but but what's even crazier is his newspaper was taken over from a Jewish newspaper that was they were the owner was killed by the Nazis and they handed over the press to these Ukrainian Nazis to make this this newspaper on their behalf and then after World War II her family immigrated to Canada and then when by the way it was a member of the Canadian the Communist Party of Canada who discovered all of that a, a scholar was digging a PhD student I think was digging through these historical archives and found all that information about her family and for years, Christia Friedland denied it, and she said that it was Russian propaganda. She said it was Russian disinformation. She actually yeah. tried to blame the fact that her fucking grandpa was a Nazi on Russia. <laughs> it's like that. Uh, I mean, this is yeah, this is a liberal playbook. I think this, Russia is the new target of that, and I almost wonder. And I've I've made this comment before, but we we've had like. I find that, you know, we always need a sort of enemy or scapegoat. And for conservatives, it's typically been, like, Muslims um, in recent years, right? Like, with the war on terror. And I think liberals are too afraid of sounding Islamophobic. So Russia's kind of playing that role for them right now. Um, But (laughs) it's kind of the same thing where you have that sort of foreign, uh, like, the scary foreigner uh, that's responsible for all the problems in the world uh can you look like you have your hand raised well i'm just scratching my head um i feel bad for ranting so much you feel like you have to (laughs) fucking raise your hand no yeah i didn't do my homework so this is interesting um but just surely in in cynthia freeland's case it uh yeah she's not responsible for the actions of her grandfather that would be no 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 no. of course not i'm not trying to say that but but it's it's insane that one she tried to not only hide the fact, but she lied about it and tried to blame it on Russia, saying that it was Putin disinformation. And two, yeah. so that's already bad enough, but two, oh, and by the way, when, when a Russian ambassador, a Russian diplomat in Canada was talking about that, those facts, the Canadian government, the Trudeau government, uh, kicked him out of the country as a form of, as a repercussion. Mm-hmm. And, and they said that, that he was spreading Putin disinformation. Yeah. And the other thing is that Christia Friedland is actively involved in supporting the Ukrainian 
militias that are waging a proxy war against Russia right now. And many of them, to be fair, not all of them, but a significant chunk of them are ultra-nationalist Ukrainians, including fascists and neo-Nazis. So like she's actively facilitating Ukrainian neo-Nazis. And by the way, I should also mention that the Azov Battalion, which is a which is part of the Ukrainian National Guard. It was pr previously a neo-Nazi paramilitary group that played a key role, along with some other neo-fascist groups, like the right sector, in the coup in Ukraine in 2014, which was backed by NATO. And it, it overthrew a democratically elected pro-Russian government, a very corrupt government, but it was democratically elected and it, it was pro-Russian. They overthrew it and installed a pro-NATO government under the chocolate billionaire Petro Poroshenko, who wanted to join NATO, who had all these, a free trade agreement going in the works with the EU. And anyway, so the Azov Battalion, this neo-Nazi paramilitary played a key role in that coup. Mm -hmm. And after the coup, the new pro-NATO coup regime, it incorporated the Azov Battalion, this neo-Nazi militia into the Ukrainian National Guard. So this neo-Nazi militia is officially part of the Ukrainian state at this point, and it still uses a Nazi-inspired symbol. You can f see its flags. It's inspired by the swastika. And they also use the, the white sun, or the, the black sun, I guess they ironically call it, which is, which is like this, it's a white supremacist symbol. You'll see like a lot of Nazis will have it, like Nazi skinheads will tattoo it on their elbow or on their kneecaps. And and they're, they're all rampant in, in the Ukrainian National Guard fighting pro-Russian separatists. And Christia Friedland has been at the forefront of supporting these groups. And not only her, there are photos that the Azov Battalion posted on its official website. And we have a report on this at the Gray Zone. And the photos show a meeting of U.S. Army forces and Canadian military forces who met with an Azov Battalion uh, force squad squadron and was working with them and training with them and there's photos of of canadian and u.s military personnel with their army with their army's uniforms on with the canadian flag and with the u.s flag shaking hands with these ukrainian nazis who have their swastika inspired flag patch on their uniform oh my god yeah i mean this is Again, like our government, you know, who are we? We're supporting these guys. We're also arming Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia still. Um, but of course, our prime minister committing wears... genocide against Yemenis. Yeah, but of course, our prime minister wears rainbow socks and goes to pride parades. So it's all, it's all good. And do you remember that when at a, at a press event, a woman asked him a question, and she said mankind, and Trudeau corrected her, and he said. We say we say people kind. <laughs> yeah. I, thought he, I thought that was kind of funny. I thought he, I think he was just joking, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I am like, <laughs> we don't have great options here. Um, even though I like to, like we chuckle at the U.S., but we really don't have great options here either. We have like one kind of left party, but they're not that exciting. The Greens or the NDP or neither. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was thinking of the NDP, uh, but they're very cowardly on issues like surrounding Palestine, for instance. Um, so they're kind of uh, like they there's a, been a lot of free speech issues where like MPs uh, get in trouble or have to resign if they say anything pro-Palestine. 
So well, and and didn't Jagmeet Singh, the the leader of the NDP, he took a trip to Israel that was sponsored oh, by all these pro-Israel apartheid groups. Yeah, I mean, they're they're not the greatest, but uh, I mean. Yeah, that's as that's as good as as we're gonna get, I guess. Uh, <laughs> until maybe I'll have to run as as a joke. Um, well, wait. By but, the way, there, there's a race going on in the Canadian Greens, which I don't really know much about. But there's yes, this guy Dimitri, Dimitri Lascaris, who's yeah. really good. Yeah, he I think is based in Montreal, where I was living for a while, and uh, I think he interrupted. Uh, McGill was honoring Halal Newer. I don't know if you know who that is. Yeah, Ken, of course. So Hillel Neuer. Insane far-right Israel apartheid lobbyist. Yeah, so like anytime the UN like criticizes Israel mildly, he's like, this is like, he just flips his, his shit, basically. Yeah, his group's called UN Watch. It's so insane. And they're really yeah. pro-Trump, which, I mean, the, the only good thing Trump has done is exposed all of these like far-right fanatics because now... Because before they all pretended to be like, oh, we support the rule of law. And then when Trump came in, they're always like, yeah, we love Trump. MAGA, MAGA all the way. <laughs> yeah. No, they're, so, I mean, it was wild that McGill decided to honor this guy. This was like after I had graduated. So I wasn't, I wasn't there, but we had Brian Mulrooney speak at my grad, but he was just kind of like an old man now. Um, but yeah, now we're we're running out of time again, so we'll rejoin and then do. Oh, I gotta say one thing. The last time I was in Canada, I was in Toronto, and I was getting some food, and there was a TV on, and I looked up, and Trudeau was in a canoe. He was canoeing. <laughs> yeah, that's his. That's his indigenous outreach. That's like the extent of it. And then. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Sorry. Before before you transition to that. We were making fun of Trudeau's PR ops. Did oh, you yeah. all see the photos? Did you see the photos of him and his family in India? Yeah, that was <laughs> they. That there was that there was like his black face thing. Like it's just oh god, it's just so much. And it was really funny because I had taught. I I don't really know anybody that likes him. That's the thing. Like I, I work with some people that do. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because everyone I know is either, like, hates him from the left or hates him from the right, you know? Like, I don't know anyone that's, like, pro-Trudeau. The silent majority um, stands with Trudeau. <laughs> I think it's no, like the U.S. is just, like, winning. people just vote for him because they hate the conservatives. It's like the U.S. Like, yeah. who, who yeah. likes Joe Biden? Well, that's what I was saying on, on our, one of our episodes. Like, I was, you know... Uh, he could actually win because nobody hates him, but no, like nobody loves him, but nobody hates him either. Like he's so hard well, to I feel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's so hard to feel strongly about. You know, like with with Hillary, she had like real haters, well deservedly for the most part. Um, but but Biden is he's so bland. He's like. Who do you, a, think, who do you guys think is going to be the next American president? I have a feeling it's going to be Biden. But. Well, unfortunately, I think Trump's going to win again. I mean, I, there's all these pollsters saying that Biden's going to win, but those are the same ones who said that Clinton had a 97% chance of winning, mm -hmm. as the New York cool. Times famously said, as Nate Silver. Wow. Oh, God. Said. 
Yeah, so, sounds like a fake number in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fake. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like either way. It sounds terrible. Sounds like a terrible outcome. It's um, either ways. I mean, it's honestly, it's not going to be that different. But but the thing is about American elections is that in the U.S. It, there is already very little turnout. The last election, which we were, everyone was told was like one of the most important elections ever, there was only 53% turnout. And th those are among eligible voters. That's, that's not including the millions of adults who are disenfranchised because they're former felons or something like that. But what, what's wild is that even with that 53% turnout, it, it, they barely, I mean, of course, Trump barely won and Clinton barely lost. But like we were told before the election that Clinton would win by 13%. That's what all the polls said. Double digits, 13% landslide, 97% chance of her winning. The polls are actually saying that Biden has a smaller lead now than they said that Clinton had. And the thing about US elections is that the people who win are the people who can motivate voters to come out. Because I mentioned, even in this election we were told was so important, only 53% came out. So the people who are going to come out are the hardcore people who love Trump and the hardcore people who really hate Trump. You know what? I also think there might be a lot of people who've been bullied by woke stuff who at the last minute be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to tell anybody, but I'm going to go vote for Trump, which is, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. I think that's like Angela Nagel's thesis on one of her works. I don't know, because I also think that that's a kind of small sample size of people who are all online I think a That's lot of true. people, most people who like don't spend all their lives online and if they ha use social media, they may like post like vacation photos or whatever. Actually, people can't even afford vacations anymore. They'll post like their, they'll post like their dog on Instagram or something. I think for a lot of them, they don't even really ever think about politics other than like some vague thing in the background about how everything sucks. That's I don't true. Know. I don't, I don't that's think that's true. I, I don't, I think everyone I've talked to has an, in, an intense sensi sensitivity to like saying the wrong thing online, even, and I mean, in workplaces too. Um, yeah, I think, I think people are very aware of it. I got to say. I, I don't know. I find it like really depends. And like, I remember sometimes like I'll, I'll like bring up a political figure and then someone will be like, who's that? And then I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so online. I can't believe, like, I, I kind of, like, even people who we think are just so well known. Like, um, when I talk to, you know, musicians, when I was at McGill and I had friends, <laughs> in, when, I was, when I was at McGill and I had friends in the faculty of music and they were still kind of well engaged. And I remember, like, I brought up Jordan Peterson and they were all like, who's that? And I thought, I'm imagining you outside a gig talking to some guy who's trying to get you to smoke a joint, bringing up like some obscure political figure. And he's like, these yeah, guys are, are celebrities, but I'm that? saying people don't. Uh, yeah. like a lot of well, people, in Canada, especially at McGill, it's crazy people don't know who Jordan Peterson is. I know. No, but it was, I mean, maybe now they would, but, but I'm, it's not just that but it's also like there's different age groups as well like a lot of these culture wars like my parents for instance they're they're not culture paying attention wars. to that yeah well they're they're not yeah, paying know, yeah. you know um so i think that's important like for for my parents like they're just kind of like they think about their taxes and they think about like war in the middle east right they have jobs. Um, well, uh, well the war part is very rare most people think about taxes but not war but you're right most people don't really look at foreign policy um i think i think that i think foreign policy has the biggest consensus 
like like bipartisan consensus out of everything um, by far and also unfortunately and especially in the u.s but also canada it's it's just something that people don't even think about it's not even just that there's the uniformity of opinion mm-hmm. it's just like it's frankly and so many polls show this again and again consistently unfortunately the majority of especially people in the u.s but slightly more in canada but still a, a small percentage of people would just care about it yeah yeah and and it's very i it's not only like in the media class for instance you know when that harper's letter came out and then people wrote a counter letter and it was just these like liberal elites kind of warring about free speech and i was like why don't you guys just kiss and make up over your foreign policy because essentially all these people uh that's what they all believe in and all these censored people are always the ones who deviate from foreign policy orthodoxy and are censored by some of the people who wrote the the letter calling to end censorship Um, like 75 percent of the people on that letter support and have actively silenced people for criticizing israel oh yeah like it's it's wild I, I was gonna like <laughs> I was gonna joke like I you know when I I was reading about uh, like you guys facing censorship um, I I was like you know I can't imagine Barry Weiss sympathizing over <laughs> over the free speech lost over uh, over there um, absolutely not so she, she dedicated her entire time in college at Columbia University to try to destroy the career of the Palestinian American scholar Joseph Massad and called him an anti-Semite and did the same for other people who criticize Israel. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, this is, this is just the norm in politics. Like even, even while we debate free speech, it feels like when it comes to Middle East politics, Latin American politics, uh, everything is settled already. Like it's not uh, like the, the, there's a there's a widespread agreement, and everyone just falls in line with that, and then they'll have their yep. culture warring completely. That's gonna be a generational thing because it's like we're all in our twenties, or are we? <laughs> Dude, are, <how? laughs> like, you know what I mean? We're all younger, and yeah. we, don't, we don't have that. Mm, no I, I i mean but still i i think like i mean i i do think that it's definitely something I, i'm not even thinking about people i know i'm thinking more about like mainstream media um because oh, it, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the major site of like manufacturing consent for war has constantly been in these like cnn new york times uh um just like these kinds of places that are just seen as like these they're either seen as like friendly liberals to liberals or they're seen as like lefty freaks from the right but when it comes to foreign policy everybody converges all the time or like they'll criticize trump from the right on foreign policy sometimes which is really funny because it's then it's yeah and like like the russiagate thing um or like even when it came to syria you had intellectuals like who were supposedly left-wing uh i had a friend that got in a fight with david graber on twitter about this like who's a noted notable left albeit anarchist academic 
who was opposing Trump withdrawing from Syria. And my friend was like, who's just run-of-the-mill anti-war guy, was like, no, it's good to pull the troops out. And Graver started going off about how he was like a white, like white leftist and like your ivory tower. And I'm like, dude, you're a white leftist too. It's so crazy. By the way, David Graber was joined by luminaries such as Gloria Steinem, former CIA agent, and Judith Butler, and a bunch of neocons signing a letter in the New York Review of Books openly calling for the U.S. military to stay in northeast Syria Mm -hmm. to to defend what they called the Rojava Revolution. Mm -hmm. So they openly issued a call defending U.S. military occupation. And of course, what the article didn't mention, what the letter didn't mention, is that the area occupied by the U.S. military, and this is before before Trump made it explicit, happened to have the largest oil reserves in Syria and also the, the large wheat fields. And it's leading now to a bread shortage in Syria because the U.S. military has been occupying these massive agricultural zones in Syria, which prevents the central government from getting access to food. And because of the sanctions on Syria and the sanctions on Iran, it's, it's hard to import food. And it could potentially lead to a famine. And you have these psychos funded by Gulf monarchies to lobby for war, like Charles Lister wrote an article in Politico, in fact, saying that there, a famine, gloating over the possibility that famine is a real possibility. And he blames it, of course, all on, on Assad. But anyway, so the point is that you have anarchists like, like uh, Graeber, and you even have so, so-called Marxist, you know, famous scholars like David Harvey, who sign, are signing letters calling for the U.S. military to remain in Syrian territory. And then like a year later, Trump was like, yeah, we're just staying to take the oil. <laughs> it's, uh, and by the way, on, on the oil thing, that's kind of a misunderstanding because people are like, yeah, the U.S. wants the oil. Well, yeah, the U.S. wants the oil, but it's not necessarily for U.S. consumption. They want the oil to prevent the Syrian government from having access to its own oil. Yeah, to destroy the Syrian government. Well, that's what I've been saying when it comes to like these wars, whether it's for oil or for lithium. It's not. It's not about like accessing it. It's about controlling. I didn't know that. Wow. That that's what that's what imperialism is. It's about controlling the resources. It's not exactly it's not controlling and the flow. Trying to engineer an a, an order that is the most economically favorable to you. It is, it, and that's the thing. This is authoritarianism. This is what I say. Like you know, people are saying, okay, anti-war activists are defending authoritarians. What is more authoritarian than trying to control the world's oil supply? Like this is, to me, this is peak. And food supply and, and medicine supply. supply. Yeah. The, the sanctions and blockades, the U.S. currently has sanctions on 39 countries representing 2 billion people. So representing almost over a third, almost a quarter of the global population. Mm-hmm. And this prevents entire countries. I've seen it for myself in Venezuela. I spent almost half the year in Venezuela last year in 2019. And Venezuela can't import or buy medicine that, because the blockade by the U.S. government, the embargo, prevents it from buying medicine from third parties mm-hmm. because other companies are afraid that if they do business with Venezuela, then they're going to be hit by secondary sanctions. The same with Iran, and that's leading yeah. to tens of thousands of deaths. If that's not authoritarianism, then what is? 
Yeah, well, I was talking to a friend actually whose family is from Iran um, and they cannot access certain cancer medicines because of the sanctions. So he was telling me, like, these sanctions are supposed to be humanitarian. Um, I, I can't think of anything less humanitarian than, like, essentially leading people to their deaths. Um, and I've talked to multiple Iranians who have been in similar situations as well. And uh, yeah, I just think it's tragic. And I think it's extremely, this is authoritarian behavior. Um, so if anything, opposing it is anti-authoritarianism. It's not absolutely, it's not defending authoritarianism, um, despite what the media consensus would have us believe. And then just like the cherry on top of this is looking at the situation in the US right now, the supposed beacon of democracy. And if you ever, if you ever oppose a US regime change war against whatever X country, they call you a defender of authoritarianism. Meanwhile, the US is one of the most authoritarian countries on earth. The US has the most police violence probably on earth. Brazil's up there too. But yeah. the US is in the top five for most violent police force on earth that kill on average over a thousand people per year. So that's an average of at least three people per day are killed by US cops. And mm -hmm. people see all the videos now. Those videos, I mean, under Trump, it's true that he is giving them total, you know, he's giving them a free for all to do whatever they want, but that's not new. I've seen cops brutalize so many people. I've seen so many friends brutalized by cops. And this isn't the, the free beacon of democracy. It's insane. And also, this isn't a country that in the US that has less than 5% of the global population and, and over 25% of the world's prisoners. Yeah. That's not authoritarianism. There, there are more people in US prisons and jails than, were, than there ever were at the peak of the gulag in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So we should, but we don't call the US prison system the gulag, of course. We, we call it the criminal justice system. It's, well, I, it's I, authoritarian. I was joking that if we want to get people to care about the U.S. prison industrial complex, we should call it gulags instead. Yeah. And maybe people will start uh, finding it more of an issue. Um, the difference is the gulags and the U.S. prison system are both class prison systems. The difference is the U.S. prison system locks up poor people. The gulags locked up capitalists and business owners and et cetera. Right. And well, I think, you know, I, I was just reading Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons Obsolete? And she was talking about how uh, the, the, the criminal, to have a jail, a, a system of incarceration, you have to kind of have the paradigmatic criminal profile. And so in the US, the criminal profile is a poor, typically black or Latino male like that's been the typical prisoner profile um that and so that's kind of like that's what exists in our social imagination whereas other countries might have a different uh criminal profile i think it's it's very it'll it'll vary culturally but yeah it is it is very authoritarian um i mean even in uh in in canada we've had some major uh police violence and and uh, uses of force and we had there is um an invasion of indigenous lands in dc and if we applied the same rhetoric things would look so differently 
but yeah, it was great talking to you, Ben. Um, I guess to our listeners, you can find Ben at the Gray Zone. Uh, and you also have a podcast, Moderate Rebels, very good podcast. Uh, and uh, you are also contribute to fairness and accuracy in reporting. Uh, that sounds like something very rare nowadays. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, thanks to our listeners. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks to you all. It's it's cool to put names to faces. And mm-hmm. I look I look forward to I'm gonna check out more of your episodes. I like the yeah. name. <laughs> thanks, thanks. I, that was Ken's uh, idea, I think. I think it was yours. Oh, it wasn't mine. Or you well, showed I, me the unacceptable from, Mo- uh, name modesty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll explain it next time, so stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> stay tuned, right. everyone. Be well. Uh, I'm sitting at the edge uh, of my seat. Uh,